Hi, welcome to the People Practice Podcast hosted by HRD Connect. Our panel today is made up of HR leaders Chuck Heaton, Chuck Kemper, Jason Anderson and Sanjay Harachand. In this episode, the panel discusses why boards of directors should pay attention to remote working policy, including issues like recruiting from a global talent pool, the increase in automation and optimising processes for a post-pandemic world. Please note that as this was a remote recording, the audio quality may fluctuate slightly from time to time. Enjoy the podcast. It's becoming important for organizations where people decide to choose to work based on, on their preference rather than the organization's preference. Now, that, that does create a bit of a headache for certainly HR teams, but I think in the context of this, what I would term the new war for talent, it certainly is going to be something that you know, global organizations particularly are going to have to think about, but not just global organizations, because you're having this phenomenon now where you, know, you may be a US-based company, but the best talent you know, in a particular sphere could be in Europe or India or somewhere else. What it does for sports and ultimately executive leadership teams think about talent in a far different way than they did previously. Because what it's done is it's opened the sphere, right, of, of where you can attract talent and for what roles you can attract talent. Now, that, that's the critical piece, I think, is, you know, it is not going to be every role in an organization, but it will be certainly uh, limited to, to the roles that that enables. The headache, I guess, for organizations is to start thinking about, you know, all of the statutory requirements, legislative requirements, as you have different jurisdictions, et cetera. We are experiencing that currently, you know, certainly here in the U.S., where people have uh, chosen during this, you know, 2020 kind of work-from-home phenomenon to go work in different states. And I don't think many organizations have thought about the impact of that. You know, I, just this morning, I saw that there are three European countries uh, Estonia is, was leading the way in proposing legislation within their country that would allow for a remote visa. In other words, I could employ somebody on a remote visa to work for my organization who's from another country, but I, I can put them onto my payroll. So if a, a company in Estonia wants to hire somebody who's in the United States, they can hire them with this remote visa and payroll them in Estonia on Estonian payroll. I mean, that, that, all those details weren't in the article, but that's the direction it was going. And that, I find that fascinating. Uh, I mean, that would be a major shift to the way that international work has been done in the past. And there's a lot of complications you could dream up about that, but, but wow, can you imagine the access to talent that would occur then uh, if, if, if countries start putting that kind of thing in place? You've already seen, uh, you know, like Hawaii, Grand Cayman, Bahamas, uh, independent countries, smaller countries that are struggling from the tourism, loss of tourism, they're saying, hey, come come stay in Hawaii. You can be a remote worker or a Grand Cayman, and we'll give you a visa or a, a pass. In fact, Hawaii will pay for your plane tickets to come to Hawaii, as long as you quarantine and follow their rules, to, to, to work there. All of us have dreamed at one point to be sitting on a beach somewhere, you know, and, 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 and frankly, we all know that we work on our vacations. So literally, I've been sitting on a beach, you know, like CK, you know, working on my computer. So, I mean, it really changes the dynamics. And in the States, in the United States right now, 
there are states arguing with each other about tax revenues because they're so hungry and, and needy for tax revenue that they're fighting about, you know, employees' domiciles where they're working, the big cities like San Francisco and New York, which have separate income taxes that help fund their budgets. You know, people have left those cities in droves. Thousands and thousands of people have moved and companies are beginning to rethink this whole big city strategy because of cost of living, taxation, et cetera. So there's, so again, there continues to be a waterfall, almost a domino effect of cataclysmic changes that are happening across the board. Uh, you know, the pandemic has already pushed the, the automation area. So there, you know, companies obviously were already pursuing lots of automation and have automation in place in places where it's going to save them labor dollars. But, but in places where it didn't exist, and now they've had this major disruption in labor availability because of folks going uh, out, um, you know, on leave for COVID issues or, or having to restructure the, the workplace different in these, you know, say a production facility. Uh, you know, what further motivation do you need to say, let's, let me get rid of the human beings in the facility and start just, you know, automating it as much as possible. So it's, it's already driving that, but that does, of course, you know, imply a change of skills. I was talking to some folks uh, yesterday who operate a manufacturing plant and uh, they, they're committing to a billion dollars worth of investment uh, over the next few years in this space. They are absolutely doubling down on automation, robotics, and um, and of course, including in that all of the change in skills that they're going to need too, right? So it, uh, while several jobs will go away, other jobs will change. So operating a, a lathe just becomes a whole lot different. So you better know how to understand the robotics and the uh, the automation behind it, the control systems, et cetera. So, uh, yeah, it's, it's another thing that I think was was coming and has been accelerated by COVID. Yeah, yeah, I agree. Uh, yeah, I agree that you know there's there's certainly an, uh, a swing to automation, and that's that's been in place for probably the last decade now, uh, and, and kind of accelerated in some industries. I think the opposite of that for me would be, and you know, bringing it back to the whole remote working thing, is that it it allows you to now tap into uh, a larger portfolio of talent that may not have been available to organizations in the past. So I'm just thinking about those individuals that have retired, you know, who prefer to go and work on a beach somewhere, uh, we're not willing to come back into the office, but have all this talent, right? You know, and I've, and I've seen that phenomenon in the oil and gas industry where you've got, you know, a lot of the, the geologists and those sort of folks who've got all this knowledge, but are not willing to work full time. They've not just gotten back into the market because organizations are willing to allow them to work from Hawaii or the Caribbean. And they don't really need to be in the office. So, so I think it's, it's remote working as a component of this, you know, and, and in, combination, in combination with automation and digitization is really going to drive uh, the, the strategy for organizations in the future in terms of how they manage their workforce. And, and combined with that, I think you'll find that, you know, I saw some stats the other day which said, you know, 50% of all folks in the, in the market today are millennials. And we know for a fact that millennials, you know, certainly my experience over the last period has been, you know, every interview that I've had a millennial in, the first thing they asked me was, can you tell me a little bit about your flexible work programs? Or, you know, can I work from home? So, so if we really want to 
really, you know, if organizations really want to attract uh, the right kind of talent, they're going to have to think about the strategy in a combination of ways, including well, not just, you know, limited to just digitization and automation, but there's some roles that just need people. And, you know, where do you want those people to be based? And at the same time, if I'm on a board, I'm going to be concerned that 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 doesn't go overboard because I'm going to worry whether I'm getting the level of innovation collaboration that I need to be happening in those hallway conversations and the, the walk down to the coffee shop, all those things where some of the best ideas are, are created and fermented, you know, what, how are those going to happen? Am I going to do a, a virtual, you know, lunch where I just sit there and eat my lunch and you're on the other end and we just, you know, sit there in silence part of the time and then part of the time we're brainstorming, I, you know, those things don't come natural. So, so how are you going to do things that are going to um, keep an impetus out there for those collaborative, innovative kind of conversations that can be very spontaneous? I think organizations that can figure out, a, a, and I think what, what we're saying is if boards can, can get executives' minds around some sort of hybrid strategy, right? I mean, I think, you know, you've got manufacturing where you, get, you have to have in-person roles, but then you've got a lot of the support functions or services business that already in some ways work remotely. And if, if you can get companies to embrace this hybrid strategy to give people flexibility to work wherever they want to, but then also have collaboration hubs or, or, or hubs where people do come together on, on a, maybe a regular schedule to feed, not only to feed that collaboration, but also just feed, I go back to my point about baseline relationships, right? I mean, I think relationships over Zoom are, are more effective when you have a baseline relationship with a person already, right? I mean, you, 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 it just facilitates or continues that, that baseline that you developed. And I think managers have been under this pressure test of how deep their relationships are with their workers being remote. So... It, it, you know, boards need to challenge executive teams thinking, and that's part of what we, we were advocating in our series of articles, but in particular, this one around remote work, that they've got a, got a old school thinking about brick and mortar strategy is, is dead. I mean, it's got to be dead. No, I, I totally agree with you, Chuck. And I think, you know, ultimately, you know, borrowing, borrowing from our previous article, companies are going to have to think about designing for inclusion, right? The, the, the experience of an employee working remotely and the experience of an employee that's in a brick and mortar has got to be the same in terms of engagement, in terms of culture, in terms of all those you know, important things that employees covered as, as part of an employee value proposition. But, so I think you're right. You know, companies have to think about this far more deeply than just the scatterbox kind of approach that we've taken just to manage through the crisis. Yeah, I think, you know, to support that, though, I think there are a bunch of tactics that can be taught. You know, there, there are, you know, the, the mention that you had, uh, Sanjay, of the, the director of remote working at, at Facebook. I think that's great because I think, I don't know if that's a permanent role, but, you know, certainly in the short term to ensure that, that folks are upskilled and how to run a meeting remotely and truly keep folks engaged, how to lead other people. I mean, how am I going to inspire folks that I'm actually not seeing in person on a regular basis anymore? And we're expecting that inspiration to be happening at all levels of the organization from anybody who leads other people. But there are tactics. There are, are things you can do, uh, discipline you can build into a manager of people's schedule and how they interact with their folks. I remember putting in a, a performance management system a few years ago, and 
we actually had a concern that some managers, because it, it allowed you to do all of the interaction online, that they were no longer going to talk to their employees about their performance. And we actually had a few instances where folks were saying, well, I got my performance view, it's all done. It went into the system. I never actually talked to my manager. So if, if there's already an inclination by, you know, certain personality types to not engage with their staff uh, because it's not a natural inclination, it's much more so that way in a remote working environment. So you're going to have to, to train and get folks disciplined into uh, interacting with their people in a way that's effective and productive. And that's the challenge. Yeah, I think from a cultural perspective, you know, yeah, we companies can't be brick and mortar anymore. We, we need to accelerate and adapt and adopt this remote workplace environment and make that part of the culture. And Sanjay, to your point, and the experience from a remote worker and someone like myself who still comes into the office every day, we want the experience to be the same. But in reality, it's not. So how do we bridge that gap? And that's that's not an overnight fix. That's the that's that's a journey, um, as, as as you may say. So that's that's going to be one of the challenges. And bringing it back to the to the boards real quick. I mean, we we think about the old way boards look at people. They typically look at the senior leadership team. They think about their compensation and how 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 they're how they compare to the market. They may ask some succession planning questions, particularly at that senior level. Maybe they engage a little bit below that level. I think that's going to be, you know, I'm, I'm interested in y'all's perspective on this. If we've got time to, to talk about it a little bit, maybe what you're hearing out in the market. You know, the last year has been like no other year. So how are companies looking and reacting to succession planning through this this change in culture, this change and this, you know, for some and for many, a freeze, if not step back from a workforce perspective, you know, reduction force, whatever. What, what are you guys hearing? What are we seeing from a succession planning perspective? And how, will, how, will com- how are companies adapting to, the, to this new reality? I remember early on, well, maybe not early on, but kind of mid-year talking to um, an exec search consultant who said uh, some of his clients were asking for a slightly different profile of leader um, that, you know, had a little more uh, experience with uh, crisis leadership. And so crisis leadership seemed to be rising in importance through all of this and how to deal with quick changes that you need to make. Yeah, Jason, I think what I'm, I'm hearing, I haven't been doing much recruitment lately, but uh, certainly what I'm hearing from, you know, some of those uh, headhunters and so forth that I've engaged with is they've seen more and more where boards are not just interested in the senior level roles, the executive leadership team. They're actually looking at roles below that. So, you know, the level below that and, and wanting to actually participate in interviews in those roles, which I, you know, I have never seen before in my HR career. So I think you've seen a, you know, to CK's point, you've seen a far greater interest from the board in wanting to understand succession planning and the kind of people that, you know, eventually end up into these executive leadership roles. And I think it's right for boards to take that approach because you, you can't make the change once you've put the person into an executive leadership role, right? You really need to build that capability and capacity 
in the level below, particularly if you want to manage a succession planning, uh, planning you know, organically. Yeah, to me, it'll just be interesting to see over time, and again, this won't be answered in the next handful of months. It's gonna take 12, 24 months. Like, will I be, will, will someone be penalized, you know, from a succession planning perspective as a remote worker, uh, as opposed to someone who's, you know, coming into the office every other day, a couple times a week, whatever. You know, it'll be interesting to me to see how companies and boards to that matter, how they respond to this new reality and, 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 and continue to include those who are capable and competent, whatever, and not exclude them because of the environment in which they work. Well, you know, Jason, we've all, I know we've all dealt with the issue of expats. And, and in some ways, it, I think the, the analogy is, is very, you know, relevant to the conversation that we, we've struggled bringing expats back into their home countries, finding the right role for them and, and, and taking advantage of the experience they gained in Africa or Singapore or wherever. And, and Sanjay has, has literally lived that himself and, and, and uh, be curious to hear how, how he dealt with that, having been an expat in multiple countries. Uh, but I think it's very similar to remote working as well. Yeah, no, that, that's a good point, Chuck. I think uh, my experience of it, though, was in a very different world, <laughs> in a world devoid of COVID, uh, thankfully. So, so the task at that point was, you know, a lot easier. Uh, and my experience as well is that we tend to do a much better job in organizations of managing the trajectory of an expat's career versus others, right? So, so, so there's a far, far more guardrails in, in place for that. And usually you've already had a conversation about an expat, you know, at the first move, what their second and third move is going to be. But, but I think your point's an important one because I think in the new world, that's fundamentally different because today you may not need to move that expat because you can actually hire somebody else in another country completely devoid of the country that you had the expat from. And so, you know, because of that ability to, to look at talent, you know, less homogeneously, it does create a, a different situation for how you manage your internal talent. And I don't know what companies, you know, companies are doing just yet to, to do that. But I think for now, most of them are probably just adopting a wait and see in terms of, you know, uh, what the world brings post-COVID. The world continues to provide us evidence and reason that boards of directors, executive leadership have to focus on HR issues. And we continue to advocate, you know, from our experience and, and, and knowledge that boards really need to be asking, you know, several questions. And, and we try to give, you know, executives and boards a roadmap, uh, at least a, a, a potential pathway to ask the right questions, to focus on the right issues, because remote working, I believe, is, is here to stay. And, and, and in a lot of ways, it could be a strategic advantage going forward if, as people have had a taste of remote working or more than a taste, they've been immersed in remote working. And if companies can figure out that, unlock that DNA challenge of how do you set up the right structure, it, it really could be a, a great advantage going forward. But there's a lot of pitfalls. There's a lot of potential barriers there that, that organizations are going to have to continue figuring out, especially in the first half of 2021. Thanks to our panel and the viewers at home. 
To stay up to date with our latest content, make sure to follow our LinkedIn and Twitter pages.